you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Okay, so this morning we are reading from 1 Kings, chapter 16, verses 29 to 34. So if you have your Bible, uh, open up to that. In the 38th year of Asar, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah in Israel. Uh, Ahab did more evil to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger him than all the kings of Israel who went before him. In his, in his days, Hill of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Negub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Well, again, good morning, everybody. Good to see you. How good is this? It's good to be back. It's good to see people in person. Uh, I've missed you, uh, and we're going to continue doing what we did in lockdown. We're going to now do out of lockdown, and that is turn to the Lord and have Him speak to us through His Word. So would you pray with me to begin? God of steadfast love, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for this moment. And what makes this moment most special is that you're going to speak to us. And so speak to us now by the power of your word, we pray. May your Holy Spirit prime our hearts to hear from you and to see Jesus in what you've written for us and respond to him in faith. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. We're going to dive straight back in to our new series. If you've Kept in the loop online, you will know that we are partway through this series called The Coming King, where we are looking at uh, a number of kings from the book of First or Second Kings. Uh, and I confess, admittedly, it is a little bit weird, isn't it, to be thinking back some 3,000 years, looking at these random names that are hard to pronounce, thanks James, uh, of kings, and uh, we're meant to be moving on. We're meant to be looking forward. We're meant to be past this. Well, I hope to see that today, particularly, we're not doing this series just to kind of reflect on history, as good and helpful as that might be, but so that we might open ourselves up to actually be transformed by how God has acted through history. And therefore, be confident that actually God might act today in our history and in our lives today. And so we're going to look at this story of Ahab, uh, we're going to look at this episode under three headings. The first, we're going to talk about the power of legacy. If you've got your Bibles open uh, in the passage that we just had read out for us, something should strike us as we read through this passage. 
We read, it says, In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And there are many of these summaries in the books of First and Second Kings where you know, spotlights a king. This one, particularly, we find Ahab is the bottom of the barrel. He is the worst of the worst in terms of leading his country, his nation in righteousness. And we'll get to why he was so bad in, in a moment. But notice in these first couple of verses, that repetition. Ahab, the son of Omri. Ahab, the son of Omri. Three times the author wants us to know where Ahab came from. He came from Omri. And if we were to scroll back and read about Omri, we would find that for his time, he was the worst of the worst. And so Ahab, like father, like son. And this is why what we're doing today is is not merely reflecting on history, but by your hearing of God's Word, by your coming to worship with the saints today, by your sitting under the Bible, by your following God's King, you're actually being invited to shape your family tree. See, God doesn't start from scratch with each subsequent generation. The influence of parents and their parents and their parents before them and the family ecosystem in which we were raised, raised, it has a massive influence on the kind of people that we become. I've raised it in this series already before that uh, there's research that tells us that the most influential people on one generation living up to the faith or, or handing or having the faith is the parents that pass the faith down to them. I've heard it said before that some 90% of Christians all around the world have at least one Christian parent. Now we pray, of course, that God would extend and expand into new families that have never known Jesus. And that's why we're here. We want to reach people far from Christ so that God might win more people to Himself as He's done with many of you. But as God builds His spiritual family, Kings reminds us that often He builds it through a biological family. That's true true back then and true today. We are never born onto a blank slate but into a legacy. Some of us know that as an unfortunate reality. That perhaps the family we were brought into brings us or has given us a a darker legacy. Perhaps our parents didn't protect us or, or nurture us or lead us like they should have. Perhaps their parents before them didn't protect them or, or nurture them or lead them like they should have. And we're going to see the devastating and dark impact that Ahab, the son of Omri, had on his nation and the destruction that his life caused, multiplying the darkness of his father. But that your parents would be so influential also works the other way. It means that the one life that you have and the way you live and the faith that you hold, well, it can actually have a disproportionate impact down throughout the generations, down throughout history. And it was fitting that I uh, opened this text up uh, this week uh, to prepare for today, because on Sunday evening, my own grandfather passed away. And when a, grandfather, or, you know, when a grandparent passes away, you, you have those moments to reflect 
on what was their legacy. I remember this when I was a kid, he did this, and, and all those kind of memories come flooding back. And as I think about my grandpa, I, I think with great thanks and great gratitude for the legacy that he passed down to his family. It was funny uh, listening to uh, the funeral service and some of my aunties and uncles reflect on the man that he was. Uh, and really, you could see my own dad in some of the reflections of his dad. And you could see actually that there were two main influences in his life, sport and the church. As I think about my own story, there are two main influences in my life, sport and the church. And so what we love gets passed down beyond and through the generations. And it was very sad, obviously, naturally, that, that my grandfather passed away, but it was also perhaps one of the, as much as these things can be positive, uh, a relief that he passed away. He was 94 years old. Uh, he had been married to my grandma for 68 years. He had been a preacher and a pastor for decades. His, his body essentially was just giving up on him over time. Uh, and yet he left relatively pain-free uh, and still, even up to his dying day, he was giving out wisdom and godly advice to his grandchildren uh, as if he was some kind of stereotypical godly patriarch of the family. Uh, and so as I think about the legacy that I've stepped into, I'm reminded of, of what Jesus says, that to whom much is given, much will be expected. That actually the legacy we step into adds to the responsibility we have to steward it. That if there's a sense of gratitude around that legacy, we have a responsibility to take it and to, because we haven't started at a blank slate, stand on their shoulders and look forward all the more. We saw that last week with Solomon. His father was a man after God's own heart and he seemingly leveraged that legacy for great good throughout his life and yet he painfully forgot it at the end. And so First and Second Kings remind us of the power that we have to shape our own family story. And so think about that. Perhaps you're here and you're, you're, you're a parent. Think about the power that God has vested in you to not just think about your years and your days, but that your years and your days are right now impacting somebody else's in the years and the days ahead beyond you. God calls us to think big. And at the end of 2021, not just to think about what are our goals for 2022, not just to have a, a five-year plan, but to have a 150-year plan. To have a, a plan that, that goes down throughout the generations. To think about what kind of great, 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 great grandchildren do we want to have? What do we want to mark our family tree? And if you're not a parent, we'll know that the reality is still true for you that you too have the power to cultivate the kind of life that is going to impact other lives and that can be passed down through the generations, to shape the legacy that you've stepped into and change it with how you live. What we see in, in these books is that uh, false religion, life without the true God, it starts to turn our hearts inward. We saw that with Solomon, didn't we? At the end of his life, he was fixated and focused on his wives. We saw it with uh, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, that in their leadership, they were fixated on accruing and keeping their power. But God wants us to think beyond ourselves. God wants us to think bigger, to live bigger, to see our lives today in the light of eternity. So let me encourage you to build the kind of character in your own life 
that is going to make your kids grateful one day when they step up to the podium and give your eulogy. Build the kind of family dynamic that is going to be celebrated by everybody, in-laws, strangers, everybody who comes into connection with it. Build a life that doesn't lead to the people closest to you, being fixated or distracted by toys or comfort or careers, but thinking about something bigger, a legacy of the family name. And so when the obituary is written about your life, what is it going to say? When you have your life summed up in a few verses like this, your name, son or daughter of your parents' names, is it going to say, they did what was right in the eyes of the Lord? We want it to say something that champions the goodness of God. And by God's grace and power, First and Second Kings help us see that actually we have this power, we have this influence as we lean on Him to disrupt the darkness of the legacy we might have stepped into and shape it in spite of what others have done or to amplify the light that we see in our legacy and follow the God of our fathers. And so this is what history can do for us. This is not a mere historical record but it is showing us paths that others have tread so that we can reflect and and think about what path we want to choose. What path are we going to take in our lives? And so we're going to walk through the life of Ahab and we're going to see the path that he took because he didn't choose to disrupt the darkness of his father. He didn't choose to amplify any goodness that was there. He chose a third way, to amplify the darkness that existed in his father. And so we're going to track through his life and see what that looked like and see how learning from his story might shape our own. And so turn your eyes back to the scriptures and uh, it goes on. The summary continues in verse 31. It says, As if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And so we're told that that Ahab exceeded the sins of Jeroboam, who if you you tuned in last week, you'll know that on top of the worship of the true God, Jeroboam kind of co-opted it and put worship of a false god. And so he built some altars, he created priests, he, he, he set up his own religious system on top of the system of Israel. This time, Ahab goes even further. Because not only is there a false religious system, we're told here that he, he married into a pagan family. He took the princess of a foreign power and then he brought in her god, Baal, to be the very god of Israel. Baal apparently was known as a storm god. He was the one that you would go to if you needed rain. And he's represented by a bull. And so the reason the Israelites will have been attracted here is because Israel itself is a land that's very dependent on rain for its fertility. And so if you're being convinced and told that, hey, here's this god who's going to give us rain, you're thinking livelihood, you're thinking, well, my net worth is going to go up if I worship this God. There's a lot of incentive here to, to shift into worshipping Baal. And so Ahab follows his wife's religion and he makes Baal a temple. And if we don't 
get it of how destructive this was, of how devastating this was, of how much of an affront this was to the God of Israel, the author here puts in a little bit of a a snapshot, a picture of what life was like given this false worship. He says in verse 34, In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. You might remember Jericho is a place where Joshua uh, had Israel and the worship team kind of walk around Jericho seven times and then it fell down. You know, our worship team is powerful. This worship team was particularly powerful, uh, but no falling down uh, in our service. The building's still standing, thankfully. And after that happened, Joshua pronounced a curse over anybody who would seek to rebuild Jericho. And that was the word of the Lord. God did not want anybody rebuilding Jericho. They wanted it to be a sign of God's power forever. And yet here Ahab is, putting out the tenders to try to find a contractor to rebuild Jericho. And Heel, the the builder who ended up winning the contract, as he is building Jericho, we're told that he built Jericho at the cost of his own son's life. Now, we don't know exactly how his children died here. But we do know that child sacrifice was a prominent feature among foreign religions. And so instead of leaving Jericho conquered, Ahab has led Israel to actually embrace their religion. Even at the cost of their own children. This is how dark it had gotten. It's a picture to highlight to us that Ahab really was the worst of the worst in leading this nation in godliness. And the narrative continues about Ahab's reign for some seven chapters, and we'll touch on just a few highlights to bear that out. We're told in this passage particularly that his marriage was significant, that he wasn't just a lone actor, but he was a part of a power couple. And so let's turn to think about our second heading, the pressure for compromise. Now, there have been some significant power couples in our time, Harry and Meghan, right now, total power couple. When I was a kid, it was Posh and Bex. Beyonce and Jay-Z, since then. Well, before all of them was Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab and Jezebel. But they weren't like a, a, a power couple for the good, they were a power couple for the evil. These guys were the Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell of the early ancient time. It was a match made in hell. Now, I often run marriage preparation, and we have a lot of marriages happening, praise God, in our our church and have in the time that we've been around. And part of the curriculum that I uh, run involves diving into the the communication uh, and, and importantly, the the family of origin of each of the uh, part of the couple. You get the sense that this kind of marriage preparation between Ahab and Jezebel would have been like just kind of a strategy session for evil masterminds who kind of got together to concoct how powerful they could be as they entered into this marriage. In my experience, normal couples talk about whether they had dinner together as a family or not. They talk about whether their parents were affectionate or not. They talk about whether, you know, you put the tomato sauce in the pantry or the fridge. Uh, Do you want to kind of rinse the plates before you put them in the dishwasher or not? You know, oh, you guys better talk about that. That's going to get, you know, that might get serious down the line. (laughs) These guys were talking about Are we going to make Israel pagan again? These guys were concocting the greatest evil they could. 
as Jezebel kind of licked her lips at the possibility of bringing Baal worship into Israel. We're told in, in chapter 21, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And so Jezebel, Jezebel was a, a terrible influence on Ahab. That she took what was already evil in him and wanted to incite it further. And there's a couple of stories that highlight that incitement of what she tried to do. Because in contrast to her and the pressure that she will have been putting on Ahab in his leadership, once we meet Ahab, we also meet God's man, a guy you might have heard of before called Elijah. Elijah was God's prophet of this era. And he was seeking to put some godly pressure onto Ahab. Elijah prophesies about a drought that's going to come over Israel as if he's kind of trying to stick it to the power of Baal, who was meant to be the rain god. Elijah raises a widow's son, which is almost like direct reversal of the child sacrifice here that had marked Ahab's reign, showing God's power even over death. And Elijah continued to confront Ahab about this Baal worship. Perhaps the most famous story of all is this great God contest. If you grew up in church, you've probably heard it before, where Elijah encourages Ahab and the priests of Baal to get their team together, and then they both build an altar to their God. And the goal is to see who can rain down fire over that altar, and whoever does it proves that they are the true and living God. And so the prophets of Baal get after it, they build this altar and they start singing and dancing and cutting themselves, doing, doing anything they can to try to convince Baal to come and light this altar up. Nothing happens. To the point where Elijah starts joking, hey, maybe he's taking a whiz, maybe he's, maybe he's on the toilet. Nothing. And then Elijah just says a simple prayer to God. And to make matters worse, he puts water all over the altar just to make sure everybody knows, you know, I'm not hiding any matches here, this isn't an optical illusion. He prays, fire. And you would think that would be it. You'd think that would be, oh, game, set, match. Let's, let's, let's put Baal away. Let's, let's, let's bring back Yahweh and return to the God of our fathers. And yet when Jezebel hears about this, she is ropeable. And so she demands that she might be able to kill Elijah. And Elijah has to flee so that he might be safe. Ultimately, he is protected, but Jezebel's violence is palpable in that moment and it continues throughout the story that we read in 1 Corinthians. In another moment, there's, there's Ahab, he peers over his fence of his palace to property next door and he thinks, man, I would love this property. I'd love to extend the, the boundaries of my property, you know, perhaps build a pool house here. The problem is that that property is owned by a guy named Naboth. And so Ahab's kind of going back home and you know, him and Jezebel are reflecting perhaps over dinner about you know, some, of the, some of the goals they have. And he's like, you know, I'd really love to, to kind of have some, a bit more property just next to us so that perhaps we could build a pool house. You know, it'd be great for the kids. Jezebel's like, we must get Ahab that property. She kills Naboth, signs the decree, giving that property over to Ahab. And so her incitement, her violence is chilling. In the New Testament, Jesus tells us that the devil himself comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And we could really 
we could use that description of Ahab and particularly of Jezebel. She and they are particularly demonic. And it shows us, doesn't it, that when we're thinking about legacy, that all of us are going to have pressures to compromise on what would be a godly legacy. And some of those pressures are going to be most felt and most intense for the people who are closest to our lives, particularly our marital partners. And this is partly why the New Testament makes you know, at pains to communicate to us that it is really important when you're a Christian that you marry someone who is in the Lord. Because yes, we hope that they might become a little bit more like you, but also the reality is that you are also going to become a little bit like them. But not just, there's not just pressure in the home. There's not just pressure because of marriage, but it also is true of all of us. Because Jezebel represents here powers that weren't just undercutting the spiritual health of Israel, weren't just undermining the Word of God in that day, but actually powers that continue even down to today. Because in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Jesus gives these words to the churches. Cutting words, words insightful into the situation going on in these particular churches, but true of all the church even today. He says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works is the first, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice, practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. And so apparently there's a church in, in Thyatira, a thousand years later, who will be in danger of being infected by this similar opposition to God and to His Word. And perhaps on the, at the time there, there was someone who embodied this kind of spirit, but it is also true for us that this pressure continues today. This danger continues for us today. Being a Christian doesn't inoculate us from this kind of pressure, from this kind of unhealthy influence. Rather, it focuses in on us. That when we become Christians, it, it, we, we become targets of this kind of influence of the evil one. And so this is worth thinking about for us, ourselves, our own legacies, and our church as well today. You may not or may not have heard of uh, the Mennonite movement before. Uh, they aren't as prominent as they once were, but they are a Christian denomination uh, who has, at this moment, become a bit more of a, a social justice movement. Uh, and one Mennonite scholar famously reflected on the decline in his own denomination of the, the, the movement away from the gospel across three generations. He said that there was actually once one generation of, of Mennonites who, who, who loved the gospel. They loved Jesus and wanted to keep the gospel central in their movement. Uh, and they also, because of that, wanted to therefore be involved in social and economic and, and political issues. Well, the next generation came along and, and they assumed the convictions of, of their parents. They assumed the gospel. And they started to focus all the more on those social, economic and political issues, identifying more strongly with them. Well, because the, the next generation after them amplified the passions of their parents, this generation rose up and denied the convictions around the gospel and started celebrating and brought all the way in to the social, economic and political issues as they became everything. And so we are always just a few generations away from churches completely changing their mission and their goal and departing from the gospel. And this is why our legacy is so important. 
our legacy as individuals, our legacy as a church. And it is fitting that on this first Sunday where we get to return in person, that we remind ourselves, that we recommit to our mission and our vision, to keep God at the center of our own lives and the life of our church. Because at the center of of God's activity, as we keep God at the center, the center of His activity is what He's done for us in Jesus. That He has come in Jesus. That He's lived our life. That He's died our death. That He's risen again. Therefore, He is the King. And He is worthy of all glory. Worthy of being exalted. God sent Him into the world so that people like Solomon, people like Rehoboam and Jeroboam, people like Ahab, people like you and people like me, would be reconciled to our Maker, be reconciled to the God who made us by repentance and faith. And so we as a church want to know Jesus and we want to make Jesus known. And next week, you know what we're going to do? We're going to know Jesus and we're going to make Jesus known. Next year, great goal for our church. We're going to know Jesus and we're going to make Jesus known. And our 10-year plan is to know Jesus and to make Jesus known. And our 50-year plan is to know Jesus and make Jesus known. Have you got it yet? In 100 years, we are going to know Jesus and we're going to make Jesus known. We are going to be all about Jesus always and forever because God is about lifting up Jesus that all people might be gathered to Him. And we need to remind ourselves of that. We need to protect that. We need to guard our passion for that because what physically happened in the book of Kings can spiritually happen to us. And so we want to sing it. We want to pray it. We want to preach it. We want to celebrate it that God has come into the world to save sinners of whom I, of whom we are the foremost. And so we're going to do many good things as a church. We're going to serve our community. We're going to shine in the darkness. And we're going to do it in Jesus, for Jesus, being all about Jesus. And so we should keep on guard that this same pressure that came from Jezebel back then, the same pressure that came like Jezebel to the church in Revelation might come to us. That what doesn't start as a a good intention become a good distraction that then might lead to out-and-out destruction. No, we want to stay faithful to Jesus and His Word. We see that corporately for Israel. We see that for the church. And what I want us to see in this story about Ahab is something else, my final heading. And it's something that in light of all this darkness that we've just looked at, in light of this violence that we've looked at, it is particularly remarkable. Because we read of Jezebel inciting him, and at the same time we read again and again and again of God pursuing him. And so let's finish by talking about the persistence of mercy. I was reading this week uh, of a story about a space shuttle launch in the 80s called the Challenger. And the story goes that the the crew was embarking on a mission and it wasn't really just about getting to space. It was about broadening, broadening the horizons of humanity, lifting our vision that we as a people might be able to think bigger dream of what is possible. And so uh, a key point of this mission was that they put a a teacher into the space shuttle and and they were going to get the teacher to teach a lesson from space down to a classroom on earth. Unfortunately, the story became a lesson in what not to do. And it was was quite tragic because 75 seconds after liftoff, as the world was watching, as the space shuttle started climbing, it erupted overhead, disintegrating midair. 
And as you would imagine, in the days following, an investigation was launched into what happened and the wreckage was examined to try to ter- determine what went wrong, what was the cause. And it found, they, they, they discovered it was the O-rings, the, those little circular rubber seals that were defective under the conditions and it led to mechanical failure. And so that was the technical explanation. But there was actually far more to the story because it turned out, after an investigation by some journalists, that NASA knew all about the defects before the mission. And they were told again and again and again, this is not good, this is going to go bad, this is going to be dangerous. But because of the the glory that they had in their mind of what it would be to, to, to increase humanity's horizons, the glory of a successful mission, they ignored it again and again and again. And so the ultimate cause of that shuttle disaster was pride as they couldn't pause the mission to protect the people. Now, Ahab's life is a similar story. And this is why Elijah is such a prominent figure in the Old Testament. He is consistently telling Ahab again and again and again the word of the Lord. He is a picture of God's patience and grace in the midst of darkness. First, he tells Ahab that a drought is coming, as if to highlight God's power over Baal's weakness. Then there is the the God contest where he displays God's power and Baal's weakness. Even in spite of Ahab's evil, God sends rain after that contest, which they did not deserve as a mercy for Ahab to please wake up and see who the boss is here. Because just like leaders in the Challenger mission had the temptation to ignore after they were being told again and again, Because people like Ahab have the temptation to ignore when even being pursued by God's Word again and again. It's an important reminder for us that as we live, as we move, as we have our being amongst here in the east and the southeast and suburbs, actually God is pursuing us again and again and again. God is pursuing you in your life right now. That you woke up this morning, that you breathed His air this morning, is a mercy and is a gift that we don't deserve. That you are living in God's world is a message, and the Bible tells us that, that God's world is crying out to you, that you might see that there is a creator. That you are mingling with other human beings is a message to you that, hey, God's image is everywhere around you, trying to point you in His direction. And that you are sitting under God's word right now is another opportunity for you to take heed. And so in all of these things, God is calling you again and again and again. And if you call yourself a Christian or not, God's calling all of us. It's a deeper commitment to Him, fuller obedience to His Word, a stronger resolve that we might live a life full of faith in Him, that we might pass that on to future generations. And there is at one point in in chapter 22 of 1 Kings, where Ahab, he blatantly rejects God's word coming to him because it comes from the wrong person. It comes from a prophet called Micaiah. And he hates Micaiah because Micaiah always prophesies negative things to him, hard things, challenging things. And so he hates him. And so Ahab had this this barrier, this block up 
that unless it was positive about me, unless it was something that was, was good for me, unless it was something that I deemed was kind of sufficiently uh, like affirming of my self-esteem, I'm not going to listen. And we need to be mindful of falling into that mentality today. Because the good news that God has for us starts out with the bad news about who we are. The bad news that all of us are sinners in need of repentance. That all of us have hearts that are deceitful. That all of us fall short of the glory of God. That all of us need to repent and turn from our own way. But while the wrapping paper might look ugly and it might offend our modern sensibilities, inside the present of the good news of the gospel actually is full of hope and joy and love and grace. See, God is is coming after us in our lives. He's speaking to us through all of these things. And He's come after us most fully and most finally by coming Himself in Jesus. Jesus has come to live your life, to die your death, to rise to new life. That in Him you can find forgiveness, you can find freedom, you can find eternal life. In Him you can be reconciled to your Creator. You can have the priorities of your heart match His and be found in Him. But the question for us like Ahab is, will we heed it? Will we hear it? Will we respond to it? Or will we build a barrier to keep ourselves from it? And that's the the opportunity that all of us have. If we call ourselves Christians, we need to turn to God again and again and again. If we don't yet call ourselves Christians, we can turn to God today for the first time. And if you do, you'll still be called to turn to God again and again and again. As we think about this, there is a moment in the life of Ahab where he teases us with what's possible. Because after the Naboth incident, Elijah comes with just a damning judgment upon him. But it's a mercy. It's hard, but it's a mercy. And he's called to repent. And amazingly, Ahab does seemingly repent. It says in 1 Kings 21, And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes, he put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elisha, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he's humbled himself before me, I will not bring disaster in his days, but in his son's days I'll bring disaster upon him. So whoever we are, whatever we've done, however dark it has got, because of perhaps what we have done, God is relentless in His coming to us. There is nothing that we have done or nothing that we have not done that will slow God down in His pursuit of us. And there is nothing that we have done or nothing that we have not done that will be that barrier that can get in the way of God's grace coming to us. We can turn and repent today. We can turn and put our trust in Jesus today. Now this example of repentance in Ahab's life, it comes late in the piece, a little bit to the op- it's like the opposite of Solomon, who lived a life of, of seemingly great good and then fell away at the end. Ahab here, seemingly great darkness, and here he repents. And we can thank God that, that we're not him and that we don't have the power or the, the need to, to, to work out how did that go for him when he finally met his maker at the end of days? We don't exactly know. But we continue to see the fruit of Ahab's life lived because this story ends by going to the next generation. In 1 Kings 22, 52 to 53, it says, He did what was evil in the... Talking about his son, Ahaziah. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. 
He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. And so we come full circle. Ahab, the son of Omri, becomes Ahaziah, the son of Ahab. And so our response to the patience, to the mercy and the message of God, our response to Jesus, that is actually the thing that is going to shape our legacy. That if we want to mark this world, if we want to make a difference in the world, if we want to make a difference in our family tree, well, first God has to make a difference in us. First God has to come and do something in us. And God wants to do that in you. And God wants to do that in your family tree. And what we see in history is that even though this family got so dark, the family of Israel got so dark, God actually injected himself into their family tree. Because hundreds of years later, after Ahab, Jesus arrives on the scene in what we'll celebrate at Christmas time. And we see when Jesus arrives on the scene, aren't they? The authors are very sure they want to put the genealogy there because God was interrupting a legacy. God was interrupting a family tree and he can do that for us as well. He wants to enter into our lives. He wants to shape our stories and have him make a difference in our lives. And so we need to soften our hearts. We need to turn that he might give us his holiness, that he might exchange our sin for his righteousness and he might empower us to live for him. And so let me encourage you, friends, to let your legacy be marked by Jesus. When you're thinking about your 150-year plan, which you're going to go home and write, let's not think first about our achievements. Let's not think first about what we can earn. No, let our legacy be marked by what Jesus has achieved for us, by what God has earned for us. And let's commit ourselves to Him afresh today. And so perhaps you want to have your life marked by Him. Perhaps that's for the first time today. Whether it's the first or the hundredth time, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. I'm going to be available uh, down the front to, pr- to pray. I know in Hughesdale, Neil's going to be available down the front to pray uh, with you, friends. Uh, and so please do come and, and take up the opportunity to come and have your family tree changed by Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we come before you today and we are reminded in this passage of the power and the responsibility that we have in our own life to shape the lives of others. Lord, we repent for the ways that we have followed others away from you. We repent of the ways that we have led others away from you. We repent of the ways that we have looked to, to idols that we might look at as, as, as opportune to serve our own ends. Lord, we're sinful, we're dark, and we need your grace. And so, Lord, we thank you that you knew that even before us, and you pursued us, and you have come for us in Jesus. And so help us to be people who commit all of our lives to being all about Jesus. Help us be people who uh, remain conscious of our vulnerability, remain conscious of the the ways we can be pressured and and influenced toward compromise, to be uh, deceiving even our own selves towards these things. Lord, we need new hearts. And so protect us, bless us, turn our hearts toward you, we pray, and empower us to live for you in a way that we might shape our generation and the generations to come to see you, 
to live for you and to keep Jesus at the centre. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.